Hello and welcome to the Eurasian Climate Brief, a podcast focusing on climate news in the region stretching from Eastern Europe and Russia down to the Caucasus and Central Asia. I'm Natalie Soer, an environmental journalist and MA student in post-Soviet politics at University College London. I'm Boris Schneider, a political economy and energy expert at NOST, a Berlin-based network for cross-border reporting. I head initiatives to boost climate journalism in Central Asia, the Caucasus and Eastern Europe. I'm Angelina Davidova, an environmental journalist from Russia. I also teach environmental journalism and environmental and climate policy at St. Petersburg State University and the European University in St. Petersburg. We'll have a full roundup of the latest climate news later in the episode. But today, the team and I are in Glasgow for a special COP26 series. By now, most of the world leaders have arrived in the city, each one of them likely to have travelled by plane, which, by the way, according to new research by the Financial Times, has been responsible for 85% of the carbon footprint at recent COP conferences. Each of the attending leaders begins their COP with a glossy welcome picture with the British Prime Minister and the UN Secretary General. But once the selfies are done, the real issues start to get discussed. One of the most controversial topics is likely to be the world's continued reliance on coal, one of the dirtiest energy sources. Now, we are recording this episode on Monday the 1st of November after the G20 failed to produce an agreement on phasing out coal. Political Europe writes, British and US diplomats did their best to pressure coal-producing countries such as China, India, Australia and, yes, Russia, to stop using the fuel, but without success. All is not lost, though. Leaders did manage to agree to end international financing for new coal plants by the end of the year. But this will be too little too late to limit global warming to 1.5 degrees. This is a bad omen for the COP president, Alok Sharma, who has made the phasing out of coal one of this summit's top priorities. To find out more about Russia's current reliance on coal, as well as the wider industry prospects for the fuel, Angelina and Boris talked to Russian climate policy expert Anna Korpo, a professor at Norway's Friedhof Nansen Institute. Angelina began by asking what role coal plays in Russia's energy sector. Well, it is socially and economically significant in some regions, especially Kuspas. But I must say it's, it's less so in other coal-producing regions. So kind of the focus of a lot of this discussion is in, in Kuspas. Coal is also quite significant in the domestic heat and power supply, especially in, in Siberia. But this significance is declining and it's quite uh, regional. The decline you can see... Uh, For instance, in the share of the power generation, it's declined by a quarter during 2000-2019. One could also claim that the coal sector is fairly significant in terms of uh, exports in Russia. But there, the whole economy point of view is more important. The coal is only contributing about 1% statistically. And Given the major indirect subsidies, for instance, in rail tariffs and building transport infrastructure, one can really ask whether coal is contributing at all to, to the Russian economy or whether it's actually costing something. So do I understand correctly that coal is uh, mostly important as an export good and less so for the domestic market in Russia? 
Well, it is regionally important also in the domestic market for now, but economically, the kind of the potential would be in the coal exports, but it doesn't seem to be economically very viable. Are there talks at all in Russia about phasing out coal? Well, there is no no official vision about this by the Russian government. But there are some talks related to international climate policy and the EU's carbon border adjustment mechanism indeed. But if we're talking about the more official debates, a very long time the energy strategies and the development strategy, for instance, for the coal industry, they have seen increase of coal exports still. And more recently, also those strategies have been including some uncertainty for the domestic demand. But if we go beyond the official visions and plans, there is a range of Russian-made economic models on how to cut greenhouse gas emissions. And this would, of course, also lead to reducing coal consumption. Coal transition can't be avoided uh, indefinitely because there are some upcoming trends, uh, especially the global low-carbon trend. It will influence demand for coal globally uh, and the EU CBAM, this was the carbon border adjustment mechanism, uh, it will certainly influence uh, carbon uh, through its carbon payments to the Russian exporting industry and through that to the domestic demand for coal. There's also an interesting development in the domestic uh, realm uh, that the Russian coal-fired power and heat generation capacity is actually very old. The average age is about 53 years, and that's very old for this kind of capacity. So the question is, what will really replace the coal capacity? Will it be new coal, gas or renewables? But one could say that the problem of coal, whether it's been taken seriously in Russia in terms of its climate impacts, uh, there's been some recent talks about carbon neutrality, but uh, it is indeed very unclear whether that will be followed by real policy measures in in Russia. So that's where you would have to judge it then. I saw that you recently published a study about phasing out coal in Russia. And could you please tell us what are the main takeaways of the study? Well, yes, it was a very interesting uh, study uh, since there hasn't been very much research done on this topic in the Russian context and uh, we're hoping to continue our work. And in this report, uh, we argue that it would indeed make sense from both economic as well as social point of views uh, for Russia to prepare for a global coal phase-out because that cannot be avoided indefinitely. There, Russia has to really choose between the reactive or proactive approach to the transition of the coal regions. And for now, it looks like it's been it's going to be more reactive. Russia is not really very actively preparing for this. It seems that there is a lot of um, sort of expectation that coal exports will go on for a good while. Um, but this kind of approach, it leads to risks of sudden economic changes in these coal-producing regions. Of course, the social transition for the workforce is a major issue and apparently also might be uh, one concern for the political leadership. And of course, as an owner of a coal uh, capacity, one might end up with stranded assets, so that could be, could be a problem. Uh, 
we were recommending the Russian government to launch an objective national assessment on how a coal transition could be done in a controlled manner. This is to avoid this kind of reactive approach when things start already happening and something must be done. So it's certainly better to have the plans at place in good good time. And we outlined elements of a fair and equitable coal transition in Russia uh, with three major elements. There would be social programs to subsidize and re-employ the redundant labor force. Second, a national and regional programs to plan and support the diversification of the regional economies. And here Kuzbas is, of course, one focus area. And third, an economic mechanism would be needed to reflect the real costs of the coal sector. For instance, domestic carbon price. And here also the EU CBAM might be rather friend than a foe, might be supporting such a transition to kickstart such a coal transition. The European CBAM in its current, uh, well, draft form, in its current idea, the way it was presented this summer, um, does not really include coal as well as other fossil fuels. And it's also that uh, major markets for Russian coal companies are actually markets in Asia. So why do you think CBAM can still be useful in that respect? Because there are many industrial sectors in Russia which are exporting manufactured products to the EU. And the carbon content of those products, the carbon intensity, will be the key. So as long as these industries in Russia will continue combusting coal in order to produce energy and then their industrial products, that would have to be taken into account when they export their products to the EU. Most of coal companies in Russia are private companies. Do you see that rather as an advantage or disadvantage to coal transition and to coal phase out? Well, that, that's a good question. I suppose private companies, they will have to adjust to the economic trends. But in Russia, I would rather uh, be interested in, in what, what is private and what is state. I think this whole uh, relationship is not quite as clear as, as it might be in many other economies. Because if we think of the coal sector and indirect subsidies, which are actually very difficult to account for, since they are indirect, this this sector receives, there must be quite a few connections anyway, even though the companies are officially private. So if, if the government then subsidizes indirectly the coal sector, it probably likes it to be there. We've been talking a lot about subsidies, direct and indirect subsidies for coal in Russia. Can you maybe give a brief explanation to our listeners uh, what form the subsidies take? Well, they mostly have to do with transporting coal to the exporting destinations. Um, so, first there are the tariffs, mostly rail tariffs, which are cross-subsidized between coal and some other export products. So, basically, uh, the Russian government supports the rail company to um, charge more from more tariff for exporting other products than coal in order to reduce the price for coal exports. So, of course, a ma from a macroeconomic point of view, that might not make a whole lot of sense. And then now that uh, the coal um, exports to the EU 
are likely to start disappearing, more rail uh, capacity will be needed or is envisaged to be needed for coal exports to Asia. And as, as, as far as it is the Russian state paying this kind of building of new infrastructure, that can only be considered as an indirect subsidy. So are there many investments right now into new coal deposits? For example, I read a while ago that um, there is this Elga coal deposit in Yakutia, which I think has a new owner called Albert Avdolian, and he wants to um, to increase the, the output from 4 million last year or two years ago to 45 million in just two years. That would be quite staggering, no? And um, I was wondering, is this, let's say, an exceptional case or... Is this more the trend which we see in Russia in these years? I would expect this to be exceptional. Um, of course, the coal market, uh, it's been picking up and the price has been increasing now in the aftermath of the COVID, the global COVID crisis. But it's, it's very hard to estimate for how long such positive trends will go on. And if you take a, even a midterm view, let alone a longer term view, then it seems unlikely that the coal business would be viable anymore in big scale. Of course, I mean, there will be some domestic demand, surely. There'll be some international demand in countries which are not really carbonizing. But if you look at, for instance, the big coal consumers, India and China, most of the coal they are consuming is domestic. And if they start cutting their coal consumption, I'm quite convinced that they're going to think of their own coal industry first and, and cut imports. But anyway, Russia and Russian business is quite well known for its um, short-term economic considerations. So I would expect this case to be one of those. It's also quite hard hard or it's becoming hard to get international financing due to divestment from coal this came up in our recent study as as well so um yeah i i think it is uh it, it would not be typical that any very big deposits would be uh, launched and expected to be very profitable over a, a longer period of time even in russia Actually, as we speak, I see in the news that Russian government has actually approved the long-term low-carbon development strategy, which also foresees the two scenarios that were spoken about in the last couple of weeks. And uh, it says Russia can potentially reach um, net zero uh, by 2060. And uh, the more ambitious scenario, uh, which will lead to um, carbon neutrality foresees decline in um, coal consumption in Russia. So do you think it's good news? Yeah, certainly. It's always very good news if, if the government is going to come along and, and, and start uh, limiting the consumption and therefore also production of fossil fuels. But of course, one would have to keep in mind uh, two things, the implementation of such uh, a vision, I would say, and then the international element of, of, of the coal export. So Russia's domestic carbon neutrality could be envisaged without stopping the coal exports. That doesn't count as Russia's emissions. 
I would also be, even though it's a great new, it's great news that uh, this low carbon strategy has finally been adopted. I would still be cautious about uh, how such a plan is going to be implemented and the target achieved. Whether we are talking about a genuine wide scale. Uh, kind of restructuring of the Russian economy away from fossil fuels or how big would uh, the role of uh, forest sinks, for instance, be and how would forest sinks be conceptualized? Are we talking about the UN approach to forest sinks or something else which would allow much more sinks to be accounted for even though they might not all be honestly anthropogenic? So those those are the kind of elements I would I would take into account in judging such a statement, which is as such positive. Would you say that there are good examples that you know from other countries that were um, that have exited coal or are in the process of um, like examples of regions which managed to successfully um, transit to a so to say post coal economy? For example, in Czech Republic. Ustinat Labem or in Germany? Are there any takeaways from that regions? Well, I think that um, it's what is more important is is whether any particular lessons might might be learned that would be applicable to the Russian situation. Not all lessons are always transferable, just like that. And we we will have to see how Russia begins to coordinate this coal transition or if it will do so, um, and whether it comes up with a strategy, like a detailed strategy, how this should be done, before really mapping on what kind of lessons would be uh, applicable. Thank you for being with us, and um, I look forward to seeing you soon. And uh, yeah, all the best for your day. Thanks. Thank you to Anna Corpo for joining us on the podcast. And now let's take a look at the latest news from our region. Ukraine is due to join the Global Methane Pledge, the country's environmental minister, Roman Abramovsky, told the website Green Deal Portal on the 29th of October. The initiative launched by the US and UK aims to cut the world's methane emissions by 30% by 2030 on the basis of 2020 levels. A total of 80 countries had rallied around the initiative on Monday the 1st of November, according to Bloomberg. Kyrgyzstan's president, Sadir Japarov, finally arrived at COP26 on Monday 1st of November. The president's plane was initially denied landing by the UK authorities for failing to meet technical security standards, according to his spokesperson. At the time of recording, the Czech Prime Minister Andrei Babiš planned to dedicate his speech at COP26 on Monday to warn of the devastating impacts the EU's Green Deal could have on the bloc's economy if other countries failed to meet similar targets, according to Radio Prague. Babiš has said he intends to use the summit to address the EU's energy crisis by focusing on regulating carbon markets. And finally, a documentary depicting the lives of people who live by the Aral Sea after its depletion was released on Netflix. The film, which is directed by Katerina Suvorova, is the first Kazakh documentary to feature on the Netflix streaming platform. 
Thanks for listening to this edition of the Eurasian Climate Brief and a big thank you to our supporters at the Battleground magazine. Don't forget to follow the podcast in your favourite app and you'll find us on social media at Eurasian Climate. We'd love to know your thoughts on the topics we discuss in each episode. We'll be back in a couple of days with a new episode, so see you then. Thank you.